Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome. Welcome, everyone, to We Earth Radio. I am very excited and anticipate some really interesting conversation today. My guest is John Michael Greer. He's a highly respected writer, blogger, and independent scholar who has written more than 70 books, including The Long Descent, Circles of Power, and the award-winning New Encyclopedia of the Occult an initiate in a variety of Hermetic, Masonic, and Juridic lineages. He served for 12 years as Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America. John Michael, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Well, I'm just so excited to talk about this subject because, as I said earlier, I think it's the best analysis of the 2016 election. And the new book is called The King in Orange, The Magical and Occult Roots of Political Power. And way back, I think 2015, you predicted that Trump was going to win the election, which a lot of people thought no way that could happen. Let's mm-hmm. talk about the landscape of politics at the time leading up to the okay. election. Yeah, as it happens, it was January 2016. Um, I, with, um, with the moment of looking up, I could tell you when, because it became a little famous and a little infamous in some circles. So what, the, the, the thing that you have to understand to follow what happened in 2016 and what's still happening now is that the most important division in American society is one that is completely taboo. We do, we do not talk about it. We do not reference it. We're, Americans are fine talking about race. They're fine talking about gender. They're fine talking about all these other things. But one thing they will not talk about is social class. Right. And to understand what has been going on for the last 50 years in America, to understand the landscape that made Donald Trump's election not merely possible, but inevitable, you have to understand the the actual landscape of social class in America um, in our time. This is a landscape where, where we, we can we, let's start by doing some very rough divisions here. OK, um, we can talk about the working class or what have you. I like to divide the classes by way of where do they get most of their income? In what form do they get it from investments? Do they get it from a salary with benefits? Do they get it from a wage with no benefits or do they get it from a government welfare check? Those are basically I mean, most Americans fall into one of those categories. We, so we can talk about the investment class, the salary class, the wage class and the, and the welfare class. Now, for the last 50 years or so, um, three of those four classes has, have remained more or less in the same condition. The, the investment class still has plenty of money. The salary class is still getting salaries, you know, the salaries and benefits. The welfare class is still trudging along, dealing with um, the inadequate, the, the kind of inadequate incomes um, and being shut out of our, our collective life that has been true ever since the welfare system was founded. 
But the thing nobody will talk about is what happened to the wage class. Mm-hmm. Okay. When I was a kid, we're talking late 60s and early 1970s. If you were an American, let's say an American family of four with one ordinary wage class income, you could afford a home, you could afford a car, you could afford three square meals a day, you could afford health care, you could afford um, clothing and all the other necessities of life, and maybe even have a little leftover to buy some presents for the kids come Christmas. Okay. By the time 2016 rolled around, that was no longer true. By 2016, if you had a family of four living on one wage class American income, they were probably living on the street. What happened, again, the greatest and most explosive political change in our time is the destruction of the American wage class, the systematic impoverishment and immiseration of the 40% of Americans, 40-50% who work for wages, who went from relatively comfortable, able to pay their bills and and meet the ordinary needs of life in our society to desperately scrambling not to starve. That's the core factor of the landscape in our time, and it's a factor that nobody will talk about. You bring it up sometimes, seriously, and I encourage all of our listeners to bring this up in a conversation where people are talking about what's wrong with society or why do these Republicans blah, 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 and watch the evasions. Watch the, well, that's, that didn't happen, or, um, well, it doesn't matter, or, well, it was their own fault. The, the, all the usual ways that privileged people um, justify their privilege against the people they've screwed over. So that was the landscape of ideas that made Donald Trump's victory inevitable. There were so many people in America at that time who were facing, who who had faced over and over again, um, a political system where both parties were pushing policies that favored the salary class and the investment class and destroyed the wage class. Mm. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, you have a brash, loudmouthed, New York real estate promoter turned wrestling, you know, world wrestling um, championship promoter, who is saying, no, we're actually going to give some give some benefits to the wage class for a change. We're going to just cut down on shipping jobs overseas. We're going to cut down on illegal immigration. We're going to need to get to that because people misunderstand that one better than almost everything else. We're going to do this and that and the other that actually help the wage class. Now, look what happened. The salary class had a world-class, shrieking, fist-pounding, heel-drumming five-year-old tantrum. (laughs) And they wouldn't talk about why. Everyone had to shriek about every reason on earth about why um, Trump and everyone who supported him were the evilest evil that ever eviled. But nobody wanted to talk about what he was proposing, which was handing something more than a few scraps falling from the table to the wage classes. And so that was it was watching that, watching the fact that Trump was saying, let's do some things to benefit the wage class. Let's do some things to benefit ordinary working Americans who have been shafted for so long. And the fact that everyone else in the political spectrum was shrieking and moaning and sitting, oh, he's a horrible person. He eats babies for breakfast or what have you. And that's when I knew that Donald Trump had a very serious shot at winning. If Hillary had and her strategists had looked at that and said, oh, crap. We need to do something to appeal to the wage class. We need to to look at that and act and not treat them as a basket of deplorables, not treat them as people to whom, well, we should hand some scraps, but actually engage them and say, okay, what do you need? What are your interests? What are your concerns? Why are you so upset? To listen instead of lecture. Then 
I think Clinton's campaign, despite its many missteps and the embarrassingly incom- embarrassing incompetence that it showed all the way through, they would have had a very serious chance. And of course, if Bernie Sanders, if if the Democratic establishment had let had let Bernie Sanders win the nomination, which he would have if they had, if they basically didn't steal it from him, he would have brushed Donald Trump aside with, without the least difficulty. But they didn't. And Hillary didn't. Hillary just kept on going on with her, you know, we're going to build the middle class. That's always the line. We're going to hand more goodies to the salary class. And that's what America needs. And millions of voters, including working class voters who had voted for Barack Obama twice in a row, were going, no, we've had enough of this. And so they threw important aspects, important voting blocks to the Republican side. And Trump got into the White House. One of the things that I found very powerful was how the rescue game works. The oh, persecuted yes. savior, and that fits so well into this. The rescue game. I, every one of our listeners knows this already. Even if you have never studied transactional analysis, you've never encountered this particular phrase. You know the rescue game. It is endless. And it played a very large role in the, in the landscape that we're talking about. Okay. Like every game, there are players and there are rules. Okay. In the rescue game, there are th- players fall into three categories. Okay. You have victims, persecutors, and rescuers. Everyone gets assigned one of those roles. Okay. Now, the victim's job is to suffer. The persecutor's job is to make the victim suffer. And the rescuer's job is to punish the persecutor and console the victim without actually helping the victim at all. This is the basic structure of American politics these days. Some group gets assigned the role of victim. It's their job thereafter to moan about how badly they've been victimized, how much they've suffered, and you know, make, make as much noise about that as possible. Somebody else gets assigned the role of persecutor. Their job is to get beaten up. And then the rescuers, who are the ones who benefit from the game, their, again, their job is to crack down on the persecutors and say nice things about the victims, again, without doing anything to benefit the victims. Take this to any one of the controversies in American public life on, on both sides of the political spectrum, on all points in our landscape. See how often you can spot who's the victim, who's the persecutor, who's the rescuer. I originally learned this, by the way. There's a school of psychology called transactional analysis that talks about interpersonal games. Um, A lot of um, interactions between people can be described using what's called game theory, which is a a branch of mathematics. And and in transactional analysis, they basically used that to, to work out a general categorization. There were functional games and dysfunctional games. Functional games are things like, you know, dating. Okay. It's a game. We all know there are rules. There are things you do. There are moves you make. And if it works, it's to ben- it benefits everybody and they have a good relationship and maybe get married and live happily ever after. That could be a functional game. The rescue game is a dysfunctional game. It's not intended to lead anywhere except that the rescuers keep on feeling heroic because they're rescuing. And they can keep on beating up on the persecutors because the persecutors are bad. And the victims at least get to say, we're suffering. Not that anyone does anything about it, but they get to say that they're suffering. Hmm. And so you watch, I mean, take any set of controversies in American public life. I'm not going to name specifics here because we're probably going to get rocks thrown at us just by getting this far. But our listeners, I'm sure, are quite clever enough to look at any controversy you care to name. Who are the victims? Who are the persecutors? Who are the rescuers? Who gets the benefit? 
Now, there, I should stress there are, there are actually separate stages in this game. The first stage is called Pin the Tail on the Persecutor, and that's when various groups of, of um, prospective victims make as much noise as possible about being the most um, neglected, most abused, most persecuted, most suffering group of people so that they, they can get assigned the role of victims and get whatever benefits they get from there. there there's always, that, that game is always going on. At any point in modern American life, somebody is trying to insist, hey, you're not paying attention to my group's suffering. And if they if they work long enough and, and are, are clever and creative, they can probably get a victim game going with themselves as the victims. Okay. Phase two is we call it show trial um, in in reference to the um, to Stalin's um, very enthusiastic playing of this game. Um, show trial is what goes on any time um, unpopular people are quote allowed to say you know to to make their case. They make their case. They get shouted down, beat up, arrested, shot in some places, in some cases. The whole point of it is to give an opportunity for the victims to emote and the persecutors to be beaten up by the rescuers. If the persecutors fail to perform, if they like don't show up, if they don't engage, then you go on to third scale, which is circular firing squad. This is the point at which the victims and the um, rescuers have to huddle together and try to figure out who is the persecutor among them. This is the point at which this person, we, we've just identified this person as an evil persecutor because they used the wrong turn of phrase. They said the wrong thing. They're not sufficiently loyal. And, you know, and then you turn on them as the persecutor and away we go. Again, these three phases are always ongoing in any given round of the rescue game. You can watch that in process. Apply that to American public life. You'll see it everywhere. And apply, let's apply that to this situation exactly. Okay. okay, in the specific case we're talking, the welfare class was assigned the role of victims. Not just the ref- welfare class, but only, the, only that fraction of the welfare class that, was, that, w- that were people of color. Because we can't talk about classes in America, remember, so we have to talk about race instead. So we're going to say that those members of the welfare class who are people of color, they're the victims. And the uh, wage class white people, they're the persecutors. And the salary class, the heroic middle class, well-educated, moral, the good people, they're the rescuers. Watch the media go through that chain. If you want, you know, I encourage people to go back to the Trump years. And you'll watch that particular setup being played on every stop and key. And the thing to notice here is that, again, the victims got no benefit out of it. They were simply paraded around as, oh, look at the poor victims. There were many things that could have been done by, say, democratic state governments to improve situations for people of color in the welfare class and generally. And those things have not been done. Those things will not be done because it is so convenient to play the rescue game using the people of the people, poor people of color as the designated victims. Whereas the middle classes, the, the salary class, the good people, the aristocracy of our society can preen themselves as, as the rescuers. They're the ones who are beating up on the evil uh, working class white persecutors. They're the ones who are feeling very sorry for the condition of, of you know, people, of, of those poor people of color. They're not doing anything to help, but they're feeling sorry for them. That shows how moral they are. You know, one of the areas that really was fascinating to me was how the salaried class, there's mm-hmm. not enough spaces in them for continuing. And I think that's a mm-hmm. really important aspect. Mm-hmm. P- Peter 
Turchin, I, I didn't have a chance to to read this and include that in the manuscript. Peter Turchin has done some some very nice work. He's a sociologist. He's done some nice work on what he call, calls elite overproduction. I think it's a mistaken term because it's not the elite who are being overproduced. It's their flunkies. Okay, that's you know that's that's a harsh word, but it's true. At any given time, the you know the the corporate, government, NGO sectors, all the sort of interlocking sectors of salary class privilege in our society, need a steady supply of flunkies. They need people who will obey, who will do what they're told, who will serve their corporate masters unquestioningly. We get this by way of the university system, especially the upper end of the universities. And you can watch people, you watch young young people who've literally bent their lives out of shape for 15 years since they were in preschool. Their parents have been grooming them to, to get that Ivy League position. And so they take all the right classes and they do all the right extracurricular things. And they do this and they do that. And they, they're in a constant frantic scramble in the hopes of making the leap. So they can get into Harvard or Yale or Dartmouth or one of these places. And once they're, if they're lucky, if they're very lucky, they will catch the attention of somebody from the actually rich classes and end up in a comfortable uh, position with a six-figure salary and benefits as a flunky. Now, it is normal for hierarchical societies like ours to overproduce flunkies. And, that, and that's essential because that way you have, you have all these people scrambling over each other trying to get those handful of prizes, those, those plush slots up there. And there are always people who lose. There are people who lose kind of partway. There are people who don't make the top level. They don't get the really cushy jobs, the, the jobs of, of prestige and power. They, they fall the notch down or they fall two notches down. Or they fall way out. Or, and these are the people who actually matter most in a situation like that, they decide somewhere along the line that they're not going to play the game. And these are the people who become the basement brigade. These are the people who are living in their mom's basement next to the washing machine because rents have been inflated to an insane level and there are very few entry-level jobs. And, and, and. We all know that story. These are the people who are actually making change. It's not the privileged, comfortable, cosseted salary class people with their six and seven figure salaries. They don't make change. <laughs> you know, the change would the change might disrupt their cozy lifestyles. It's always the people who, who are cast out to the outside. It's always the outsiders, the people on the fringe, the people who are, you know, um, these days, hanging together on the chans and things like that. There, that's where new ideas are born. That's where new alliances begin taking shape. That's where the future has its seedbed. Okay, so you mentioned chans here. So we're I gonna mentioned the chans. <laughs> so let's talk about the use of magic. What is manipulative? What of chaos magic? How okay, did yeah. that influence it? And the okay. whole underground, most people wouldn't know what a Chan is. On that Absolutely. To. Okay, let's, let's start with magic, because that's one of the places where most people just sort of look blank and wander off, because, because their idea of magic is all Harry Potter. Okay, now, I, I, I admit, I was not a fan of the Boy Wizard. Um, it's just one of those things. But the crucial thing is, all of our listeners, whatever you think, when you think of magic, if you think of Harry Potter and Dumbledore and um, people waving around wands and going ungrammaticus latinus or some such nonsense and having fireballs shoot out of the end, that's not what we're talking about here. That's fake magic. That's there to distract you. Okay. Dion Fortune, who was one of the great magicians, uh, the great 20th century magician, she's the person who led the, the occult dimension of the struggle against the Nazis in World War II. 
and one, by the way. The unfortunate defined magic very simply. Magic is the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. I'm going to repeat that because it's of crucial importance. Magic is the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. Now, does that sound like publicity? Advertising? Manipulative? The various manipulative stuff that politicians and corporations get it? Well, yes, it does. They, our society is basically run by magic. That's why we don't talk about magic. Um, Joan Coliano, the brilliant Romanian-American professor of, of the history of religions who was assassinated um, some time ago, um, and, and there were reasons for that, um, he, he used to argue that, and in fact, in his most important book, Eros and Magic in the, in the Renaissance, he argued that we don't live we don't live in the kind of jackboot autocracies that everyone thinks of, you know, the ones where you have stormtroopers marching down the streets or have, we don't have to. We live in what he called magician states, states where control over the populace by the elites is managed by magical means, by causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. It's done by way of mass media. It's done by way of rumor campaigns. It's done by way of a thousand different means. We're all familiar with them. Anyone who sits in front of the television for four hours and doesn't simply doze off into a low-grade trance with the drool puddling in their laps, it's actually watching an important – that's where – I mean, our stormtroopers are televisions. Those are the ones who keep people obedient and unquestioning and asking, thinking only the thoughts that are approved for them. So – that's our that's that's where that's where sorcery, the sorcery that supports the status quo, really gets its foothold by way of mass media, by way of advertising, by way of these days professional influencers and professional trolls online and all this kind of stuff. It's a whole mechanism to get your ideas out there and make sure that ideas that violate the the that, that don't support the interests of the status quo don't get in, don't get a look at. So that's magic. That's what we're talking about. Does it have dimensions that can be a little spooky uh, that maybe don't um, fit within current scientific theory? Sure. But we don't have to get into that now. That's something, you know, if you want to, if you want to study magic, if you want to get into it, I have lots of books on the subject. You can read it there. But with, with magic as the art and science of, change, of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will, you have this constant pressure in us in a magician state like ours between the establishment between the corporate system, which is putting out its version of what is real, its version of what kinds of consciences are acceptable, what kinds of consciences are considered sane. And these are all, of course, the modes of consciousness that support the status quo, that support you know, corporations making insane amounts of money and people being screwed. And then you have a fringe of people on the outsides who are looking at that going, I don't think so. And there is usually a complicated balance between these two groups. We can call them the magic of the excluded. Those are those people out on the fringes. And we can talk about the magic of the excluders, the people in the center who, who basically are maintaining the status quo by promoting their view of what's real. Now, we saw an important clash between those, of course, during the Trump years, because Trump was supported by a significant fraction of people from the excluded, from the, that, that outlying region. And a lot of them had to do with the chance. Now, the chance, okay. Some people don't even know what that means. Some people hear about it and go, oh God, evil racists, evil, you know, what have you. They, they believe what they've been told. The chance started out as um, it, there was a Japanese website uh, and the English title was Futaba Channel. For reasons that make perfect sense if you speak Japanese, that, that was um, abbreviated to Tuchan. 
And it was, it was a Japanese language place to go and talk about video games. Another one spun off from there, kind of in the same way that Amoebas you know, reproduce, which called itself, obviously, 4chan, and it was English language. Most of the conversation on there was about video games. Again, that's what it was there for. But they had other forums that were, started spinning off on their own directions and going in, in, off in new ways. All of these were anonymous. All of them are unmoderated. All of them are no-holds-bars. You can say anything. And of course, that's part of the attraction, because in a society like ours, where what you say is constantly going to be used against you, a lot of people really want to go someplace where they can say absolutely anything. So that was an important part of the attraction, especially for young people, especially for people who have been shut out of the salary class, shut out of any possibility of a normal adult life, could not, uh, couldn't get a job, couldn't rent an apartment, living in the basement next to mom's washing machine, you know the drill. So you have these people on the chance, because 4chan was just the beginning. There were many others at this point. They're all anonymous. They're all message boards. They're all insanely lively. And they're, among other things, very, very creative. You probably know what a lolcat is. Actually. Oh, okay. Now, there we go. Yeah. Um, Lolcats lol are the if if you see a pic, like a picture of a cat with a with some kind of goofy words underneath it. The classic one was the cat looking up with this hopeful look, and I can has cheeseburger. <laughs> that was the okay. lolcat. Um, any of any of our listeners below the the age of about forty will know instantly what a lolcat is. <laughs> lolcats were invented on Fortune. Lol standing for laughs out loud or something else? Um, lol, yeah, lol, yeah, lol is short for laugh out loud. Right, okay. Okay, yeah. So, I'm 69, um, you know, I, I, no, I'm 76. Excuse me, I can't even remember my say, age, good heavens, you, alone. You, good heavens, you've aged quickly. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of on the border here at 58. So, I, you know, kind of, I'm definitely in geezer territory where the chans are concerned. But I was able to, you know, I, I, I'm sufficiently digitally, digitally um, capable that I was able to go there and lurk and listen into the conversations. So you have the chance, you have this amazing burbling mess of creativity and anguish and stupidity and brilliance and all kinds of people who are shut out of, of a full involvement in international life talking and talking because they don't have anything else to do. And so when Donald Trump announced his candidacy, the chance piled into it. On the one hand, Yes, there were a certain amount of people on the chance who fall into the evil categories. They're racists or what have you. More importantly, the sheer parody value of a reality TV star running for president made Trump irresistible to them. He was a joke. He was a hilarious joke. And so they flung themselves into supporting him because it made people so upset. Keep in mind, this is always one of the great draws of the outsider. If you, you know, if you can get the people who have it all, the people who have the the the, the salary and benefits and the the ritzy apartment and the good car, if you can make them melt down and shriek like an anguished five-year-old, you've achieved something. <laughs> and that is what they did. But so what happened was that you had you had the chance started to, people in the chance really starting to get into the Trump campaign. And noticing that a lot of his policies were actually things that might help them 
in terms of their ordinary lives, things that would um, increase the availability of jobs. And, you know, <laughs> not a minor point when a lot of what keeps you from, from entering into adult life is there is no work. And so they backed him for that reason. They backed him for the parodic reason. They backed him for all kinds of reasons. And they backed him especially because the establishment just literally could not say the word Trump without throwing a screaming fit. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to keep poking that. Mm-hmm. So that was a, now, now that, so we have the chance and we have magic, which we've been talking about here, this sort of, this sort of tradition of the excluded and the tradition of the excluders pushing at each other. And then one fine day, those two ended up coming together because some people in the chance found out about a tradition called chaos magic. Now, I don't do chaos magic. It's not something that interests me. Um, what happens is that every 50 years or so, um, somebody gets the idea they can come up with an, a new novel, innovative, avant-garde kind of magic by getting rid of everything that offends the rationalists, the materialists, and so on, and presenting it to this new scientific magic. So that was chaos magic. It was it was born in the 1980s, and it's been it's been a presence there. It's it's very easy to learn, and it tends to make use of certain fairly simple to learn and fairly simple to do practices that you can use to cause changes in consciousness in accordance with will. So some people on the chance found out about this, and they started passing it on and saying, okay, here are some exercises. Here are some ways you learn to concentrate. Here are some ways you learn to, to play games with symbolism and imagery and so on. And that picked up. And then you you pretty quickly had people starting in that scene starting to use those tricks to support the Trump campaign. Hmm. And that's where things started getting weird. I mean, seriously weird. This is you know this is where um, the door comes open and a tentacle comes out of it, so to speak. Because the first thing that happened is that um, of course they started this and Trump started going up in the polls rapidly. And they were looking at each other going, this is really strange. And then they started, I, I should say, one of the things going on in, in the chans, and this is one of those little in-group jokes that you get in a setting like that, every post on um, any of these boards has an automatically assigned number. And they're sequential numbers, but because there are thousands of people putting stuff up at every moment, you never know what your number is going to be until you hit enter and your thing, po- your thing pops up. So it started to become a thing to look for series of repeated numbers in the number that you got. So if you got, you know, 1204777, that was a get. That's what they called it, okay? It was a get. And that's a trip specifically, a triple. You have three. Two count, three is better, four is better still. But that, that had become this kind of game and this kind of, kind of thing among the, among the inhabitants of the chance. And then people started to notice that when that every time somebody did a post on Donald Trump, it had an unusually high likelihood of getting gets. So you have this post and that post and that post, and then something called Donald, the Trump campaign, and it's um, 4067888. And everyone's just going, this is really strange. <laughs> and then somebody, um, we're, we're about June now, and other things were going, somebody just posted in uh, Irrelevant to nothing at all. Trump will win. Hit enter. That was post number seven 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 seven. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and so everyone's going, "Whoa, this is getting this is getting really heavy." And to use the the jargon of an earlier era. <clears throat> so yeah, there was that, and 
Now, the, the Chans also had this habit of saying kek for laughter. Mm-hmm. Kek, 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 kek. Okay. That's, it's, it, that's, what, that's how, you, that's how you, you write. We, we say in English, we say ha, ha, ha. In Korean, it's kek, kek, kek. Don't ask me. That's how that, that's where I came from. So they had this 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 thing kek, okay, and they also had that cartoon frog, right? You remember the cartoon frog? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> feels good, man. The uh, the archetypal flower, Pepe the frog, and so what happened is that somebody noticed that there was an Egyptian frog god named Kek. Who looked kind of like Zippy, or like not Zippy, like 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 Pepe the Frog, and so it just turned into this sort of running gag that wasn't quite a gag. What if, what if we've somehow contacted this Egyptian frog god who's signaling to us with gets? Of course, that the 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 Trump will win with the the ultimate get of all time. That came through. By that time, you had a lot of people on the chance who were who were working on um, chaos magic, who were casting spells for Trump's campaign, and they all launched themselves into one big project, which was to make Hillary Clinton collapse in public. There were rumors, as you'll recall at that time, that uh, Hillary Clinton had some kind of illness, some kind of chronic disease that she was not acknowledging, that she was hiding from the voters. So they were going, okay, let's make her collapse. So on came September 11th, 2016. Clinton goes to a 9-11 memorial thing. She gives a speech. She denounces Trump as, e- as an evil right-wing type and talks about Pepe the Frog. <laughs> and all the chancers are going, woohoo! And then she leaves the event and goes to her van and in view of the camera, goes down like a sack of potatoes <laughs> and has to be hauled into the SUV. People clustering around to try to hide this from everyone else. It was an odd moment. And everyone in the chance who was involved in the spill was just going, oh, boy. So this stuff actually, like, works. And that same day, that same day, some other anonymous chancester pops up and says, guys, guys, look what I just found. It was a forgotten Europop song from the 1980s called Chatelet. It's one of these things that just has essentially nonsense words. But... The CD had on it a frog with a magic wand, and the band's name was P-E-P-E, Pepe. (laughs) (laughs) So Chandelier became their anthem, and um, everyone figured, or at least pretended to believe, or acted like they believed, that, that Keck, the Egyptian frog god, had given them a vote of confidence. I honestly think... If, if Donald Trump had called on them to walk into the sea for him, they would have done it. Mm-hmm. But they flung themselves into the election campaign doing all this chaos magic night and day. And we saw what happened. An election that nobody, that no, no serious pundit believed Trump could win. Trump won. Yeah. Now, did the chaos magicians do this? Was this, was this an act of Keck the Egyptian frog gun? I have no idea. But we need to be open to the possibility that that, that that had something to do with it. Well, also talk about the magic on the other side, because it wasn't a oh, one-sided dear. thing. Uh, well, it, no, it, no, it wasn't, although it was, they, they, there was a time difference there. Because you had most of, most of what was going on in the chans was before Trump's election. Well, the magic on the other side was the, the magic resistance, as it as it called itself. Bad move, but we'll get to that. Um, the magic resistance was after. Because nobody on the left thought Trump would win. Yeah. 
people were all convinced they were going to, you know, ha- hail the election of Hillary Clinton, um, the first woman president. Um, we would check off another box proving that we're virtuous people and and not sexist and all this kind of stuff. And she would continue to pursue the same the same uh, policies that all of her predecessors had done for decades, throwing goodies at the salary class, stomping the wage class into the mud, and, you know, and uh, defending the U.S. empire overseas at all costs in the whole nine yards. And then she lost. And the candidate of the deplorables, the candidate of those horrible wage class people, those people who salary class people think of as beneath them, Watch how salary class treat their supposed retreat like um, store clerks and, or, or wait staff at restaurants. If you want to see just how much compassion the salary class has for for the wage class, sometimes <clears throat> I, I should mention I've worked retail, I've worked in restaurants, I've, I've been on the receiving end of this. But yeah, so they they had you know they didn't simply have a cow, they had a herd, <laughs> and as we all saw. And so, of course, what happened was a lot of people on the left who were into magic decided they were going to launch this magic resistance. They were going to destroy Trump by by their magic spells and this kind of stuff. And they didn't. They 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 did embarrassingly badly. There were some reasons for that. On the one hand, if you one of the basic rules of magic is you have to have a positive goal. If all you're doing is resisting, if all you're doing is negating and opposing, you're just going to be static. You're just sitting there. You have to have a positive goal to move toward, or you don't make any any progress at all. This is something people know who do affirmations. If you want an affirmation, you have to leave out words like no and not, mm-hmm. because that 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 will negate your practice. That'll that'll make the affirmation useless. It has to be phrased positively. It has to be phrased directed toward a goal, because that's how the deep levels of our mind think. So they didn't have that in mind. They also didn't really focus on a single goal. The chancellors did. Their goal was to see Donald Trump in the White House. That was all about that from beginning to end. But the magic resistance, I mean, the, probably the, the the low point there was the, in Brooklyn, there was a big uh, a Wicca shop in Brooklyn that invited everyone to come to this big, they were going to do this big magical working against Trump and everything he represents. And everybody who came was, was um, encouraged to bring all of their special pet issues, and they'd all do all this working on them and get them all, you know, focus on all of these things together. You know, it's like, if you want water to come out of pressure, you need to have it go through a nozzle with a narrow aperture that points in one direction. If you punch a thousand holes in your hose, you're going to get a little bit of sprinkler action or maybe just a soaker hose, but that's all. There's just going to be a trickle out the end. And the same is true of magic. The same is true. If you want something to happen, you have to focus on a single thing. They didn't. But the most important problem is that they were so public about it all. There were books published giving all their rituals, saying, if you want to join us in fighting Trump by magic, here are all the rituals. If you want to, and there were um, online magazines were giving the full texts of everything and the dates they were doing this. Now, there were all these people on the right who had some magical training by then. And who were picking these things up and saying, ooh, we can mess with these. And they did. Just as you, there's, there's a rule in, in magic, there, there, these, the four magical virtues that Eliphaz Levy um, came up with in 1854 are to know, to will, to dare, and to be silent. You do those four things, you, you make good magic. And one of my teachers used to say, to know, to will, to dare, and to shut the <clears throat> up. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, but 
it's for the same reason that you, if you're playing poker, you don't show the other person your card. And if you're going to, if, you know, if, if the allies are going to invade, not invade Europe in D-Day, they're not going to tell the German high command where they're going to land. But the magic resistance didn't have that kind of common sense. And so routinely their spells backfired in their faces. I'm thinking of when, uh, oh, the big, the big fuss over the Supreme Court, um, Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh, um, he was, this was in, in the first half of Trump's of Trump's term when he didn't, he had just an incredibly narrow majority in the Senate, and he was trying to get Brett Kavanaugh into the Supreme Court. And so the the magic resistance type said, oh, we're going to stop him. We're going to do this big spell to make sure he is never, he never becomes a justice of the Supreme Court. And the day after they launched that spell, all the remaining resistance to Kavanaugh's um, candidacy in the Senate collapsed, and he was sworn in. Yeah. Total failure. Yeah. <laughs> now, it is true that Donald Trump is not president right now. Um, I don't know how many people are willing to bet that he's not going to be president come, you know, come 2025. But we're running out of time and we could talk for hours on this. We could. There's a but lot of stuff I, going on here. I want to look at what's happened now. That uh -huh. Trump is not there. And mm -hmm. there's this huge move towards and spurned on by COVID this major taking away of freedom and this mm -hmm. totalitarian damping down and the, mm -hmm. you know, one of the shocking statements for me, and I don't know your position, but I'd like to hear it, was mm -hmm. when Biden said, if you're not getting vaccinated, you're killing people. That's a pretty strong statement. It's, it's, it's typically delusional. Yeah. Um, the, the thing to keep in mind is that they got they got Biden in the White House, and the world did not suddenly become perfect. Mm -hmm. And so, an enormous. I think that a lot of what's going on with the whole virus panic is that people are taking fears that they can't admit to themselves and loading them onto onto the coronavirus. Okay, I'll be I'll be a little more public than I usually am here. I had it in April of 2020. I got the I got the coronavirus. I got over it. I've had colds that were worse. This is true of many people under the age of 70. It's not that big a deal. Most other infectious illnesses have a higher chance of killing you. But this has become this immense focus of panic. And that itself, that looks, you, you want to look at that as a magical phenomenon. This has become the great bugbear of our time, the thing that our privileged classes, our media classes, our political classes can admit they're afraid of so they don't have to face up to the things they're not willing to talk about. It's also avoiding the octopus in your face, climate mm -hmm. change, income disparity. Exactly. Uh, they, they're trying to run away. Yeah, they're trying to run away from those things. And so, you know, they're terrified. And they know perfectly well that we've reached the point that the normal left-wing approach to climate change, which is that everyone else has to stop using carbon so we can keep flying to Acapulco for, veg for our vacations. That doesn't cut it anymore. They're realizing the income disparity has reached the point that, that the country is primed for revolt. They've realized the system is breaking apart, but they can't admit that because it's central to the entire mentality of the, of the privileged classes, that they're the smart ones. They're the ones who know how to run everything, and therefore everything must be perfect and getting better and on its way towards some Star Trek future metastasizing across the galaxy. That's, their whole identity is caught up in being the smartest kids in the room. 
And so instead of realizing that all their policies are blowing up in their faces, instead of realizing that they failed, they, blame, they put all of their fear into COVID. And they put all of their hatred of the general public into these um, abusive behaviors. These, you know, like we're going to prevent everyone from going to church, okay? Church attendance tends to be primarily wage class and poverty and, and welfare class. The salary class does, typically doesn't go to church. So it's another way of punishing the poor for not, you know, for, for existing, for, for, for having needs of their own, concerns of their own, not simply being little puppets that the salary class can move around in nice little patterns and feel good about themselves. So how would you see the, the movement now with all of these major issues that are not being addressed and yet the inevitability of uh -huh. not being able to have an economic system based on continuous growth with finite resources, with yeah, yeah. the heating of the planet. All of these things are in our face right now. They're exactly. the real issues. Exactly. No, and that's why people are so crazy. That's why people, especially people in, people in the privileged classes, are so crazy right now because they're frantically trying to avoid the fact that they're, they're about to run face first into a brick wall. And so shrieking about COVID or shrieking about this or insisting that, you know, if you don't buy into the latest, um, you know, poorly tested um, experimental um, product of the pharmaceutical industry, you're killing people. It's a way of venting. That's my and take, at least. What does the trajectory look like to you? You made in your book, and again, uh -huh. I tell people that uh, John Michael Greer has a new book out. Uh, you write books faster than I can read them, John Michael. But the... <laughs> I, I love, I love writing. It's the, it's the best job I've ever had. Um, and you're really yeah. good at it. <laughs> well, thank you. The King but, in Orange, The Magical the Roots and Occult Roots of Political Power. And in mm -hmm. that, you begin to look at, okay, you know, the falling of the empire. There's a, yeah. there's a, a structure of that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, let's take a little look at that and see oh, yeah. how you see we're, that. We, we're heading for major collective discontinuities. Exactly how those are going to play, I don't know yet. I don't know if anyone does. It could be a stock market crash. Right now, over in China, the stock markets are, are, are tumbling. If that becomes, if that spreads a contagion to our to our economic system, look out below. We have we have an economy based on smoke and mirrors, vast amounts of unpayable IOUs and, and hallucinatory funny money. And will that be will that be maintained? Probably not. So we could be looking at severe economic dislocations in the near future. We are certainly looking at drastic environmental dislocations. We're looking at a situation where in large parts of the American Southwest, including such little towns as Los Angeles, we're not that far from the point where people will turn on their taps and get dust instead of water. Yeah. Millions of people are going to have to move. Where are they going to go? What kind of conditions are they going to get when they get there? Meanwhile, we've got um, the, the oceans rising and the climate destabilizing to the point that the New York subways are flooding every time there's a large thunderstorm. And you know, the CIA and the uh -huh. people who are in the governmental think tanks have known this for 20 of years. Course. Oh, more longer than that. More. Longer yeah. than that. I remember when, when, I, when I was a teenager in the 1970s, I read all the literature that was coming out, all the scientists who were saying, scientists who were saying look, if we keep on doing this for another 50 years, we're going to run face first into a brick wall. 
Yeah. We're going to, we are we are going to peak and begin to decline. Now here we are. It's been 50 years. Look out the window. Yeah. You know, our infrastructure is falling apart. That's a sign of economic decay and unraveling. Um, our environment is going crazy. That's another thing that was predicted. Um, we've got uh, we well. Officially, we have just a little transitory inflation. Prices are spinning out of control. We have shortages. We have we have a country in serious trouble. And what we have at its lead, you know, uh, <laughs> in the helm at the helm of the ship of state is a puppet on a stick. Hmm. Now, John Michael, I, 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 you know, I want to when you look at at uh what's his name spengler and people who have predicted uh-huh. how uh, how how civilizations how rise civilizations and fall. Right, right rise yes. and fall exactly i'm i you know you could say this is my my hopeful heart here but one thing that i'm seeing and i love mm-hmm. your response to this that has never happened in large numbers are well two things one is that there seems to be more and more people that are becoming more present and awake. And mm-hmm. within that, there's an understanding that we live in a current and inherited ancestral sea of trauma. And mm-hmm. there's a huge rise in the recognition that mm-hmm. much of the reason that keeps us from acting in the face of these obvious things that are coming mm-hmm. to us is mm-hmm. because we're numb and and we have all this mm-hmm. frozen past in our mm-hmm. body but people mm-hmm. are beginning to wake up do you see mm-hmm. any sense of possibility in that or where 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 are you on that Stan? okay the, it is normal when a, when a civilization peaks and be, begins to decline obviously people notice and it's normal for spirituality of some kind, or shall we say, some kind of introspection, some kind of turning within, some kind of recognizing the deeper roots of problems, that becomes pervasive. It typically ends up becoming an established religion, but it doesn't start that way. Mm-hmm. Um, what became Christianity was a very busy realm of different sects and groups and teachers who, who actually had an enormous amount to offer. And that's why there were, um, that's why the Roman world simply didn't plunge straight down into the abyss, leaving nothing behind. That's why there were monks and, mon- monks and nuns in monasteries who were preserving the, the records of the past. That's why there was some cultural survival. I, what I expect to see happening in this case is that a creative minority, because it's always a creative minority. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a creative minority will come together around various new insights, the ones you've mentioned among them, and begin building the framework that will become the the basis for the next civilization. Our civilization has basically run its it's it's running its course. I mean, civilizations don't fall fast; it takes centuries. But we're we're busy sliding down the usual slope. But all the way along that, people are are noticing this, waking up, starting to build something new. Many of them in other societies have kind of moved off to the fringes, mm-hmm. whether you know whether it was in monasteries or other kinds of little communities and so on. They pulled away from the 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 hulk of the dying system to become the seed bearers of a new age. And that is the hope that I have. The hope that I have is that more people will realize, okay, industrial civilization as we've seen it didn't work. 
it was worth trying. It was an experiment. It's failed. We know why it's failed here. You know, you've mentioned some of the reasons. The, the fixation on perpetual progress is another one. The idea that we could, that infinite growth is possible on a finite planet. We can go on for a long time. Yeah. But people are, people are thinking about those problems just as people thought about the problems of the Roman world. Well, that was on its way down. Just as people thought about the problems of, of imperial China at various points in its history when things were on the way down. I could fill in dozens of other examples. This is normal. It's healthy. It's the way that a new civilization will be born. And so I'm very hopeful about that. It's just that there's a lot of unraveling that has to be done. Um, there's a lot of clearing away. And so, you know, those of us who are interested in, in those possibilities for the future, we need to get a move on. Yeah. And the only way through is through. Um, yeah, exactly. There's no the only way. The only way through is through. You have to start with acceptance. You yeah. always have to start with, you know, this is where we are. This is how we got here. Here are the causes for that that we know, and those are not going away just because we've woken up to them. We accept them, and then what do we do? You know, that's and and that's you know just because industrial civilization is, is in decline, is heading for a deindustrial dark age um, some centuries from now, that doesn't mean that we're all going to be waking up in caves next Wednesday. It doesn't mean that we're all going to live lives of misery and torment. That again, that's part of the propaganda of the industrial system. That if you don't have your machines, you'll suffer horribly. No. We can get. We can all learn to get by with focusing more on our own internal capacities as human beings mm -hmm. and less on the crap that the industrial system wants to sell us. I want to underline that. <laughs> say that one more it, time, John Michael. That's. I gotta um... say, we yeah, we we need to. Okay, yeah, please burn this brutally into your backside with a branding iron. We need to rely on our own internal capacities as human beings and not on the manufactured crap that the industrial system wants to sell us. Mm, yeah, beautiful. Now, we've only got a couple minutes left, uh -huh. uh, so much more to talk about, but I, I wanna bring it back to this uh, inner work a little bit, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the, the importance of that and things that people can do uh, oh, yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a meditation teacher, and I'm always working that's, on those a, issues. But the, that's a great place to start. The, yeah, the things that people can really do to begin to to widen the lens of mm -hmm. their perception and mm -hmm. uh, and uh, be able to create more inner capacity to meet oh, yeah. the challenges. I think that's such an important thing, and I know you've spent your life working oh, yeah. with things like that, that. That's, that's most, that's much of what I talk about. Um, there are some very simple things that I recommend to people. The first one is to turn off your television. <laughs> if you could talk your housemates into it, take it and dump it and drop it in the dumpster. It's just filling your mind with crap. There's a reason they call what's on it programming after all. So, but, but we'll set that aside. At least turn off your television a little more often. Give yourself some time to think Give yourself some time to reflect. Um, take up the habit of journaling. One of the things that I highly recommend to people, get, get a, just a plain old ordinary spiral notebook with the kind you used in school and a pen or something, and make the, make the habit of 15 minutes a day just writing whatever comes into your mind. Mm -hmm. Don't let yourself stop. Don't stop. Don't let your pen stop for anything. Don't censor. Just keep it moving. Whatever comes into your head. 
That way you're going to start learning to listen to yourself, to understand what is in your mind, what you have. These are very basic things. If you want to go beyond that, there are lots of people who can teach you how to meditate. There are lots of people who can teach you some of the basic, some of the inner exercises that can start you learning how to use some of the capacities you have. But the most important thing is to give yourself time to reflect, to think, to remember, to feel. Mm. And don't fill your life, your lives with, with noise. Don't constantly have, you know, some box or other yelling at you to try to, because the, the whole point of that is to drown out thinking. I mean, many people, you, you'll probably remember the days when restaurants did not have 47 televisions yelling at you from all sides. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Nowadays, people are so terrified of the inside of their own heads that they literally can't relax without having some television telling them what to think. And that's a habit that has to be broken. So, or some expert, or some prophet, yeah. or some yeah, exactly teacher, the, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you, you all, um, Paul Foster Case, who was who was a teacher in one of the traditions I've studied, he used to say, "All the power that ever was or ever will be is here now, <laughs> and it's in you." It's not off there in la la land. You don't have to, you know, have a zigzagged um, birthmark on your forehead or anything like that. <laughs> you know, you've got it. You just have to. You have to know how to find it. You can find it inside yourself, in the silence. John Michael Greer, it's just such a delight to have you on again. Thank you for just a really intelligent, grounded conversation that I I hope people will listen all the way through and really take it to heart. So John Michael Greer, thank you so much. For You're time. welcome. And thank you. Yeah. Many blessings. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.